Chapter Forty Seven of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The way which shows that they mean it. If this kind of thing were to go on, life wouldn't be worth having. That was the feeling of Ralph the Squire of Newton as he returned on that Saturday from London to the Moonbeam and so far Mr. Neefit had been successful in carrying out his threat. Neefit had sworn that he would make the young man's life a burden to him, and the burden was already becoming unbearable. Mr. Carey had promised to do something. He would at any rate see the infatuated breeches-maker of Conduit Street. In the meantime he had suggested one remedy, which Ralph had thought before. If you were married to someone else, he'd give it up, Mr. Carey had suggested. That, no doubt, was true. Ralph completed his sojourn at the Moonbeam, leaving that place at the end of the first week in April, took a run down to his own place, and then settled himself up to London for the season. His brother Gregory had at this time returned to the parsonage at Newton but there was an understanding that he was to come up to London and be his brother's guest for the first fortnight in May. Ralph the heir had taken larger rooms and had a spare chamber. When Ralph had given this invitation, he had expressed his determination of devoting his spring in town to an assiduous courtship of Mary Bonner. At the moment in which he made that assertion down at Newton, the nuisance of the Neefit affair was less intolerable to him than it had since become. He had spoken cheerily of his future prospects, declaring himself to be violently in love with Mary, though he declared at the same time that he had no idea of breaking his heart for any young woman. That last assertion was probably true. As for living in the great house at the Priory, all alone, that he had declared to be impossible. Of course he would be at home for the hunting next winter, but he doubted whether he should be there much before that time, unless a certain coming event should make it necessary for him to go down and look after things. He thought it probable that he should take a run abroad in July, perhaps go to Norway for the fishing in June. He was already making arrangements with two other men for a move in August. He might be at home for partridge shooting about the middle of September, but he shouldn't go into residence at Newton before that. Thus he had spoken of it in describing his plans to his brother, putting great stress on his intention to devote the spring months to the lovely Mary. Gregory had seen nothing wrong in all this, Ralph was now a rich man, and was entitled to amuse himself. Gregory would have wished that his brother would at once make himself happy among his own tenants and dependents, but that, no doubt, would come soon. Ralph did spend two nights at Newton after the scene with Neefit in the Moonbeam Yard, just that he might see his nags safe in their new quarters, and then went up to London. He was hardly yet strong in heart, because such a trouble as that which vexed him in regard to Polly does almost make a man's life a burden. Ralph was gifted with much aptitude for throwing his troubles behind, but he hardly was yet able to rid himself of this special trouble. 
That horrid tradesman was telling his story to everybody. Sir Thomas Underwood knew the story, and so he thought did Mary Bonner. Mary Bonner, in truth, did not know it, but she had thrown in Ralph's teeth as an accusation against him that he owed himself and his affections to another girl, and Ralph, utterly forgetful of Clarissa and that now long-distant scene on the lawn, had believed, and still did believe, that Mary had referred to Polly Neefit. On the 10th of April he established himself at his new rooms in Spring Gardens, and was careful in seeing that there was a comfortable little bedroom for his brother Greg. His uncle had now been dead just six months, but he felt as though he had been the owner of the Newton estate for years. If Mr. Carey could only settle for him that trouble with Mr. Neefit, how happy his life would be to him. He was very much in love with Mary Bonner, but his trouble with Mr. Neefit was of almost more importance to him than his love for Mary Bonner. In the meantime, the girls were living, as usual, at Popham Villa, and Sir Thomas was living, as usual, in Southampton buildings. He and his colleague had been unseated, but it had already been decided by the House of Commons that no new writ should be at once issued, and that there should be a commission appointed to make extended inquiry at Percycross in reference to the contemplated disenfranchisement of the borough. There could be no possible connection between this inquiry and the expediency of Sir Thomas living at home, but after some fashion he reconciled further delay to his conscience by the fact that the Percycross election was not even yet quite settled. No doubt it would be necessary that he should again go to Percycross during the sitting of the commission. The reader will remember the interview between Gregory Newton and Clarissa, in which poor Clary had declared with so much emphasis her certainty that his brother's suit to Mary must be fruitless. This she had said with artless energy, in no degree on her own behalf. She was hopeless now in that direction, and had at last taught herself to feel that the man was unworthy. The lesson had reached her, though she herself was ignorant not only of the manner of the teaching, but of the very fact that she had been taught. She had pleaded, more than once, that men did such things, and were yet held in favor and forgiven, let their iniquities have been what they might. She had hoped to move others by the doctrine, but gradually it had ceased to be operative even on herself. She could not now tell how it was that her passion faded and died away. It can hardly be said that it died away, but it became to herself grievous and a cause of soreness instead of a joy and a triumph. She no longer said even to herself that he was to be excused. He had come there and had made a mere plaything of her, willfully. There was no earnestness in him, no manliness, and hardly common honesty. A conviction that it was so had crept into her poor wounded heart, in spite of those repeated assertions which she had made to Patience as to the persistency of her own affection. First dismay and then wrath had come upon her when the man who ought to be her lover came to the very house in which she was living and there offered his hand to another girl, almost in her very presence, 
had the sin been committed elsewhere and with any rival other than her own cousin she might have still clung to that doctrine of forgiveness because the sinner was a man and because it is the way of the world to forgive men but the insult had been too close for pardon and now her wrath was slowly changing itself to contempt had mary accepted the man's offer this phase of feeling would not have occurred clarissa would have hated the woman but still might have loved the man but mary had treated him as a creature absolutely beneath her notice had evidently despised him and mary's scorn communicated itself to clarissa the fact that ralph was now newton of newton absolutely in harbor after so many dangers of shipwreck assisted her in this i would have been true to him though he hadn't had a penny she said to herself i would never have given him up though all the world had been against him debts difficulties an inheritance squandered idle habits even profligacy should not have torn him from her heart had he possessed the one virtue of meaning what he said when he told her that he loved her she remembered the noble triumph she had felt when she declared to mary that that other ralph who was to have been mary's lover was welcome to the fine property her sole ambition had been to be loved by this man but the man had been incapable of loving her she herself was pretty and soft bright on occasions and graceful she knew so much of herself and she knew also that mary was far prettier than herself and more clever this young man to whom she had devoted herself possessed no power of love for an individual no capability of so joining himself to another human being as to feel that in spite of any superiority visible to the outside world that one should be esteemed by him superior to all others because of his love the young man had liked prettiness and softness and grace and feminine nicenesses and seeing one who was prettier and more graceful all which poor clary allowed though she was not so sure about the softness and niceness had changed his aim without an effort ah how different was poor gregory she thought much of gregory reminding herself that as was her sorrow in regard to her own crushed hopes so were his his hopes too had been crushed because she had been so obdurate to him but she had never been false she had never whispered a word of love to gregory it might be that his heart was as sore but he had not been injured as she had been injured she despised the owner of newton priory she would scorn him should he come again to her and throw himself at her feet but gregory could not despise her she had indeed preferred the bad to the good there had been lack of judgment but there had been on her side no lack of truth yes she had been wrong in her choice her judgment had been bad and yet how glorious he had looked as he lay upon the lawn hot from his rowing all embraced brown and bold and joyous as a young god as he bade her go and fetch him drink to slake his thirst how proud then she had been to be ordered by him as though their mutual intimacies and confidences and loves were sufficient when they two were alone together 
to justify a reversal of those social rules by which a man is ordered to wait upon the woman. There is nothing in the first flush of acknowledged love that is sweeter to the woman than this. All the men around her are her servants, but in regard to this man she may have the inexpressibly greater pleasure of serving him herself. Clarissa had now thought much of these things, and had endeavored to define to herself what had been those gifts belonging to Ralph which had won from her her heart. He was not, in truth, handsomer than his brother Gregory, was certainly less clever, was selfish in small things from habit, whereas Gregory had no thought for his own comfort. It had all come from this, that a black coat and a grave manner of life and serious pursuits had been less alluring to her than idleness and pleasure. It had suited her that her young god should be joyous, unbraced, brown, bold, and thirsty. She did not know Pope's famous line, but it all lay in that. She was innocent, pure, unknowing in the ways of vice, simple in her tastes, conscientious in her duties, and yet she was a rake at heart, till at last sorrow and disappointment taught her that it is not enough that a man should lie loose upon the grass with graceful negligence and call for soda water with a pleasant voice. Gregory wore black clothes, was somber, and was a parson. But, oh, what a thing it is that a man should be true at heart! She said nothing of her changing feelings to Mary or even to Patience. The household at this time was not very gay or joyous. Sir Thomas, after infinite vexation, had lost the seat of which they had all been proud. Mary Bonner's condition was not felt to be deplorable, as was that of poor Clary, and she certainly did not carry herself as a lovelorn maiden. Of Mary Bonner it may be said that no disappointment of that kind would affect her outward manner, nor would she in any strait of love be willing to make a confidence or to discuss her feelings. Whatever care of that kind might be present to her would be lightened, if not made altogether as nothing, by her conviction that such loads should be carried in silence, and without any visible sign to the world that the muscles are overtaxed. But it was known that the banished Ralph had, in the moment of his expected prosperity, declared his purpose of giving all that he had to give to this beauty, and it was believed that she would have accepted the gift. It had, therefore, come to pass that the name of neither Ralph could be mentioned at the cottage, and that life among these maidens was sober, sedate, and melancholy. At last there came a note from Sir Thomas to Patience. I shall be home to dinner to-morrow. I found the enclosed from R.N. this morning. I suppose he must come. Affectionately, T.U. The enclosed note was as follows. Dear Sir Thomas, I called this morning, but old stem was as hard as granite. If you do not object, I will run down to the villa to-morrow. If you are at home, I will stay and dine. Yours ever, Ralph Newton. The mind of Sir Thomas, when he received this, had been affected exactly as his words described. He had supposed that Ralph must come, he had learned to hold his late ward in low esteem. The man was now beyond all likelihood of want, and sailing with propitious winds, 
but Sir Thomas, had he been able to consult his own inclinations, would have had no more to do with him. And yet the young squire had not done anything which, as Sir Thomas thought, would justify him in closing his doors against one to whom he had been bound in a manner peculiarly intimate. However, if his niece should choose at last to accept Ralph, the match would be very brilliant, and the uncle thought that it was not his duty to interfere between her and so great an advantage. Sir Thomas, in truth, did not as yet understand Mary Bonner, knew very little of her character, but he did know that it was incumbent on him to give her some opportunity of taking her beauty to market. He wrote a line to Ralph, saying that he himself would dine at home on the day indicated. Impossible, said Clary, when she was first told. You may be sure he's coming, said Patience. Then I shall go and spend the day with Mrs. Brownlow. I cannot stand it. My dear, he'll know why you are away. Let him know, said Clarissa. And she did as she said she would. When Sir Thomas came home at about four o'clock on the Thursday which Ralph had fixed, Thursday the 14th of April, he found that Clarissa had flown. The fly was to be sent for her at ten, and it was calculated that by the time she returned Ralph would certainly have taken his leave. Sir Thomas expressed neither anger nor satisfaction at this arrangement. Oh, she has gone to Mrs. Brownlow's, has she? Very well. I don't suppose it will make much difference to Ralph. None in the least, said Patience severely. Nothing of that kind will make any difference to him. But at that time Ralph had been above an hour in the house. We will now return to Ralph and his adventures. He had come up to London with the express object of pressing his suit upon Mary Bonner, but during his first day or two in London had busied himself rather with the affairs of his other love. He had been with Mr. Carey, and Mr. Carey had been with Mr. Neefit. "'He is the maddest old man that I ever saw,' said Mr. Carey. "'When I suggested to him that you were willing to make any reasonable arrangement,' meaning a thousand pounds or something of that kind, I couldn't get him to understand me at all. I don't think he wants money, said Ralph. Let him come down and eat a bit of dinner at the cottage, said he, and we'll make it all square. Then I offered him a thousand pounds down. What did he say? Called to a fellow he had there with a knife in his hand, cutting leather, to turn me out of the shop and the man would have done it, too, if I hadn't gone. This was not promising, but on the following morning Ralph received a letter which put him into better heart. The letter was from Polly herself, and was written as follows. Alexandra Cottage, Hendon, April 10, 1860, blank. My dear sir, Father has been going on with all that nonsense of his, and I think it most straightforward to write a letter to you at once, so that things may be understood and finished. Father has no right to be angry with you. Anyway, not about me. He says somebody has come and offered him money. I wish they hadn't, but perhaps you didn't send them. There's no good in Father talking about you and me. Of course it was a great honor and all that, 
but I'm not at all sure that anybody should try to get above themselves, not in the way of marrying, and the heart is everything. So I've told father, if ever I bestow mine, I think it will be to somebody in a way of business, just like father. So I thought I would just write to say that there couldn't be anything between you and me, were it ever so, only that I was very much honored by your coming down to Margate. I write this to you because a very particular friend advises me, and I don't mind telling you at once. It is Mr. Moggs, and I shall show it to father, that is, I have written it twice, and shall keep the other. It is a pity father should go on so, but he means it for the best. And as to anything in the way of money, oh, Mr. Newton, he's a deal too proud for that. Yours truly, Marianne Neefit. As to which letter, the little baggage was not altogether true in one respect. She did not keep a copy of the whole letter, but left out of that which she showed to her father the very material passage in which she referred to the advice of her particular friend, Mr. Moggs. Ralph, when he received this letter, felt really grateful to Polly, and wrote to her a pretty note in which he acknowledged her kindness and expressed his hope that she might always be as happy as she deserved to be. Then it was that he made up his mind to go down at once to Popham Villa, thinking that the Neefit nuisance was sufficiently abated to enable him to devote his time to a more pleasurable pursuit. He reached the villa between three and four, and learned from the gardener's wife at the lodge that Sir Thomas had not as yet returned. He did not learn that Clarissa was away, and was not aware of that fact till they all sat down to dinner at seven o'clock. Much had been done and much endured before that time came. He sauntered slowly up the road and looked about the grounds, hoping to find the young ladies there, as he had so often done during his summer visits. But there was no one to be seen, and he was obliged to knock at the door. He was shown into the drawing-room, and in a few minutes Patience came to him. There had been no arrangement between her and Mary as to the manner in which he should be received. Mary, on a previous occasion, had given him an answer, and really did believe that that would be sufficient. He was, according to her thinking, a light, inconstant man, who would hardly give himself the labor necessary for perseverance in any suit. Patience at once began to ask him after his brother and the doings at the Priory. He had been so intimate at the house, and so dear to them all, that in spite of the disapprobation with which he was now regarded by them, it was impossible that there should not be some outer kindness. "'Ah,' said he, "'I do so look forward to the time when you will all be down there. I have been so often welcome at your house that it will be my greatest pleasure to make you welcome there. We go so little from home, said Patience. But I am sure you will come to me. I know you would like to see Greg's parsonage and Greg's church. I should indeed. It is the prettiest church, I think, in England, and the park is very nice. The whole house wants a deal of doing, too, but I shall set about it some day. I don't know a pleasanter neighborhood anywhere. It would have been so natural that Patience should tell him that he wanted a mistress for such a home. But she could not say the words. She could not find the proper words, and soon left him, 
muttering something as to directions for her father's room. He had been alone for twenty minutes when Mary came into the room. She knew that Patience was not there and had retreated upstairs, but there seemed to be a cowardice in such retreating which displeased herself. She, at any rate, had no cause to be afraid of Mr. Newton. So she collected her thoughts and arranged her gait and went down and addressed him with assumed indifference, as though there had never been anything between them beyond simple acquaintance. "'Uncle Thomas will be here soon, I suppose,' she said. "'I hope he will give me half an hour first. Ralph answered. There was an ease and grace always present in his intercourse with women, and a power of saying that which he desired to say, which perhaps arose from the slightness of his purposes and the want of reality in his character. "'We see so little of him that we hardly know his hours,' said Mary. "'Uncle Thomas is a sad truant from home.' He always was, and I declare I think that Patience and Clary have been the better for it. They have learned things of which they would have known nothing had he been with them every morning and evening. I don't know any girls who are so sweet as they are. You know they have been like sisters to me. So I have been told. And when you came it would have been like another sister coming, only— Only what? said Mary, assuming purposefully a savage look. That something else intervened? Of course it must be very different, and it should be different. You have only known me a few months. I have known you enough to wish to know you more closely than anybody else for the rest of my life. Mr. Newton, I thought you had understood me before. So I did. This he said with an assumed tone of lachrymose complaint. I did understand you thoroughly. I understood that I was rebuked and rejected and disdained. But a man, if he is in earnest, does not give over on that account. Indeed, there are things which he can't give over. You may tell a man that he shouldn't drink or shouldn't gamble, but telling him will do no good. When he has once begun, he'll go on with it. What does that mean? That love is as strong a passion, at any rate, as drinking or gambling. You did tell me, and sent me away, and rebuked me because of that tradesman's daughter. What tradesman's daughter? asked Mary. I have spoken of no tradesman's daughter. I gave you ample reason why you should not address yourself to me. Of course there are ample reasons, said Ralph, looking into his hat, which he had taken from the table. The one, most ample of all, is that you do not care for me. I do not, said Mary resolutely. Exactly. But that is a sort of reason which a man will do his best to conquer. Do not misunderstand me. I am not such a fool as to think that I can prevail in a day. I am not vain enough to think that I can prevail at all. But I can persist. It will not be of the slightest use. Indeed, it cannot be allowed. I will not allow it. My uncle will not allow it. When you told me that I was untrue to another person, I think that was your phrase. Very likely. I supposed you had heard that stupid story which had got round to my uncle, about a Mr. Neefit's daughter. I had heard no stupid story. What then did you mean? 
Mary paused a moment, thinking whether it might still be possible that a good turn might be done for her cousin. That Clarissa had loved this man with her whole heart, she had herself owned to Mary. That the man had professed his love for Clary, Clary had also let her know. And Clary's love had endured, even after the blow it had received from Ralph's offer to her cousin. All this that cousin knew, but she did not know how that love had now turned to simple soreness. "'I have heard nothing of the man's daughter,' said Mary. "'Well, then?' "'But I do know that before I came here at all, you had striven to gain the affections of my cousin.' "'Clarissa?' "'Yes, Clarissa. Is it not so?' Then she paused, and Ralph remembered the scene on the lawn. In very truth it had never been forgotten. There had always been present with him, when he thought of Mary Bonner, a sort of remembrance of the hour in which he had played the fool with dear Clary. He had kissed her. Well, yes, and with some girls kisses mean so much, as Polly Neefit had said to her true lover. But then with others they mean just nothing. If you want to find a wife in this house, you had better ask her. It is certainly useless that you should ask me. Do you mean quite useless? asked Ralph, beginning to be somewhat abashed. Absolutely useless. Did I not tell you something else? Something that I would not have hinted to you had it not been that I desired to prevent the possibility of a renewal of anything so vain? But you think nothing of that. All that can be changed with you at a moment if other things suit. That is meant to be severe, Miss Bonner, and I have not deserved it from you. What has brought me to you but that I admire you above all others? You shouldn't admire me above others. Is a man to change as he likes because he sees a girl whose hair pleases him for the moment better than does hers, to whom he has sworn to be true? Ralph did not forget at this moment to whisper to himself for his own consolation, that he had never sworn to be true to Clarissa. And indeed he did feel that though there had been a kiss, the scene on the lawn was being used unfairly to his prejudice. I am afraid you are very fickle, Mr. Newton, and that your love is not worth much. I hope we may both live till you learn that you have wronged me. I hope so. If my opinion be worth anything with you, Go back to her from whom you have allowed yourself to stray by your folly. To me you must not address yourself again. If you do, it will be an insult. Then she rose up, queenly in her beauty, and slowly left the room. There must be an end of that. Such was Ralph's feeling as she left the room, in spite of those protestations of constancy and persistence which he had made to himself. A fella has to go on with it, and be refused half a dozen times by one of those proud ones, he had said. But when they do knuckle under, they go in harness better than the others. It was thus that he had thought of Mary Bonner, but he did not so think of her now. No, indeed, there was an end of that. There is a sort of way of doing it which shows that they mean it. Such was his inward speech, and he did believe that Miss Bonner meant it. By Jove, yes, if words and looks can ever mean anything. But how about Clarissa? 
if it was so, as Mary Bonner had told him, would it be the proper kind of thing for him to go back to Clarissa? His heart, too, for he had a heart, was very soft. He had always been fond of Clarissa, and would not for worlds that she should be unhappy. How pretty she was, and how soft, and how loving, and how proudly happy she would be to be driven about the Newton grounds by him as their mistress. Then he remembered what Gregory had said to him, and how he had encouraged Gregory to persevere. If anything of that kind were to happen, Gregory must put up with it. It was clear that Clarissa couldn't marry Gregory if she were in love with him. But how would he look Sir Thomas in the face? As he thought of this, he laughed. Sir Thomas, however, would be glad enough to give his daughter, not to the heir, but to the owner of Newton. Who could be that fellow whom Mary Bonner preferred to him, with all Newton to back his suit? Perhaps Mary Bonner did not know the meaning of being the mistress of Newton Priory. After a while the servant came to show him to his chamber. Sir Thomas had come and had gone at once to his room. So he went upstairs and dressed, expecting to see Clarissa when they all assembled before dinner. When he went down, Sir Thomas was there, and Mary, and Patience, but not Clarissa. He had summoned back his courage and spoke jauntily to Sir Thomas. Then he turned to Patience and asked after her sister. "'Clarissa is spending the day with Mrs. Brownlow,' said Patience, "'and will not be home till quite late.' "'Oh, how unfortunate!' exclaimed Ralph. Taking all his difficulties into consideration, we must admit that he did not do it badly. After dinner, Sir Thomas sat longer over his wine than is at present usual, believing, perhaps, that the young ladies would not want to see much more of Ralph on the present occasion. The conversation was almost entirely devoted to the affairs of the late election, as to which Ralph was much interested and very indignant. They cannot do you any harm, sir, by the investigation, he had said. No, I don't think they can hurt me. And you will have the satisfaction of knowing that you have been the means of exposing corruption, and of helping to turn such a man as Griffinbottom out of the house. Upon my word, I think it has been worth while. I am not sure that I would do it again at the same cost, and with the same object, said Sir Thomas. Ralph did have a cup of tea given to him in the drawing-room, and then left the villa before Clarissa's fly had returned. End of chapter 47 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina